Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Old Dirty is uh, one of my best friends. Yeah, he was a great one. Um, and uh, I first met him, he was having an argument with a telephone pole. I guess it was like 1992 or something like that. <laughs> and uh, I think the Old Dirty Bastard is like what makes America great. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah. give a clap, Old Dirty. And, um, he was a real original as a real artist and uh yeah he's just he was someone you know we did a lot of crazy illicit things and uh, <laughs> tell us one story that you did what you did together well i'll get all right the first time i met the guy um all dirty he had just stolen a pair of sneakers and um we got i think it was right around the time we got that photograph and this lady was taking a photograph of us together and uh I just written kids at the time, and he goes, he looked at me, he said, you wrote that shit, nigga? I said, yeah, and he goes, I'm going to sit your ass down in a church pew, <laughs> and you're going to start dictating for me. And uh, so then this photographer's like, can we get a photo of you together? And he put his arm around me, and he goes, you got two shots, because the nig steals from the nig. And he's, and he's like, I'm like Marvin Gaye, I don't believe in that shit. And uh, <laughs> so he only let us uh, two photographs, and then... Uh, we went in an elevator together, and this Chinese woman got in, a business lady. I'll never forget. Uh, you know, just a normal woman. And uh, she, uh, she was short, and she pressed, and, and Old Dirty and I were standing there. And he just looked at her. He was looking at her ass, and he just, and he just goes, I want to put a baby in your ass, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and, he said, and she looked around and goes, excuse me? And he was like, I want to plant my seed up in there. <laughs> and I just, man, I just fell in love with the guy. <laughs> Uh, right from there. Okay, so. that was a good one. Okay. Stephen Gedney is from Woodland, California, broadcasting live from a pre recorded session via Carmichael, California. Uncle Steve is the biggest weirdo. Are we on the Stephen Gedney podcast? We are on the podcast. <laughs> same bad time, same bad Yeah, time. that's right. <laughs> Arrive by Turkey. Oh, yeah. Oh, if you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. I'm feeling you all. Steven will definitely not work. <laughs> this is your number 97 source for movies, music, comic books, geek culture, life lessons, philosophy, stories of rock and roll, drugs, alcohol, and everything in between. Come one and come all. Enter. The You're listening to the Stephen Gedney podcast. <laughs> perfect. That's perfect. Ain't nobody got time for that. All right, everybody, this is me. SG Stephen Gedney, and you're listening to the Stephen Gedney podcast. Thanks for listening, subscribing, sharing, all that good stuff. Whew. Episode 39, January 25th, 2016. All right, man. So I'm sitting here right now on a Sunday night with not one but two Diet Mountain Dews. And before I get into this week's podcast, uh, just 
give you a little bit of insight into my brain and how I think. I like doing this podcast. I try to bring it to you on a weekly basis. And some weeks are harder than others. It all depends on what I've been doing and how much motivation I have. Because I know this is not one of the top podcasts out there. I probably only have about three or four regular listeners. And everybody else kind of tunes in and tunes out. But I keep moving forward because it's a creative outlet for me. And that's it, man. I mean, I I try to listen every week myself just so I know what I'm doing, what's good, what's bad, and use that information to keep moving forward. I listened to last week's episode and I thought it was really good, even though I didn't necessarily have a lot to talk about. I tried to slow down my speech because I usually start out so excited and now with this last episode, I, I slowing down and stuff, I, I, I don't know. I just enjoyed it a little bit more. I had more time to think and just developing my personality here. Um, it's episode 39, man. It's crazy. <laughs> it's almost been a year since I started doing this. And this week, I don't know, man. It, it, there hasn't been a lot going on, but I've been in a really weird mood. Sorry about this this thing that I do. I don't know. I, I just noticed that recently. It's like every week when I listen to an episode, there's certain things that I do that annoy me, whether it's, um, um, like I always say, um, or I do the tongue thing. I don't know why I do that. You know, is another one, <laughs> but what can you do, man? You just try to catch yourself and do that shit. So let me take a sip of Mountain Dew here. So yeah, man, it's I've been in a really weird mood, kind of inside my own head this week. I don't know, maybe it's the post-holiday season. You know, we're in January right now. It was actually my sister's 28th birthday yesterday. She's up there in Oregon with my mom, my brother, sister-in-law, nephew, all those good people. Wished her a happy birthday. Got a thanks reply, but not really. It's it's weird. A lot of families out there are really close, but I'm not. And it's not that I don't love my family because I do. I definitely do. But I've just always felt different. I felt like the one who enjoys his solitude the most. I think in general, I always felt like even having a group of friends and stuff, I didn't need to be social all the time. And I live, I basically live inside my own head some more often than not. And this week was one of those weeks where I, I just, I don't know what it was. I, I really just felt closed off to a lot of the world. And, you know, I'm in a marriage and I I work with people I do a lot of texting. I try to text my friends often, especially JP, my best buddy. But yeah, like I said, this this was just one of those weeks and, and going to try to move forward. I didn't really go to the gym this week because, oh, Lisa, 
had a problem with her leg and her back and we go we get up together we don't go to the same gym but I feel weird getting up in the morning and her sleeping in because the dog wakes up and the dog's just gonna keep her awake for that whole hour and you know I, I enjoy resting as well I do I know I need to exercise but I'm not morbidly obese yet <laughs> And then Wednesday, her mom had to come up here for some uh, uh, medical issues. I don't want to get too deep into that because it's not really my place. But she had some medical procedure and wanted to hang out here to recover for a few days. So that was nice. She's it's, she's always good to spend time with. She's my other mom, basically. And we went out, had had some food, had some pizza had islands another day and just been playing a lot of video games <laughs> first it was wwe 2k 16 still still doing that shit like crazy living the virtual wrestling dream i'm a big well i'm not a huge wrestling fan anymore but as a kid from you know 96 to 99 that's what i was all about i was living in a fantasy world of all sorts of shit. I mean, you know, I'll probably I'll talk a little bit about more about wrestling in another podcast, but yeah, it was it was definitely a big part of my life. It was it was <laughs> arguably the coolest shit going on <laughs> in my life <laughs> between those years. Also, though, besides the WWE, I downloaded a few extra levels for my Batman Arkham Knight game. That's been fun and then Elisa and I just bought uh, GTA 5. So that's been a, a nice thing so far. And one of the really cool things about GTA 5 is it has this mode called director mode where you get to make all sorts of little movies with some virtual characters and you get to unlock more characters and you basically place them wherever you want. You could place the camera wherever you want. It kind of brings me back to the days of an old school PlayStation game called driver where I used to make all sorts of movies as well. And it's just another creative outlet for me like this podcast, like the music that I do. I just gravitate towards wherever creativity inspires me or wherever I'm inspired to be creative so the PlayStation it's got its pros and cons one of the things is you know the making <laughs> movies and screenshots and been adding that to my Facebook page and I really see a lot of potential <laughs> to make some little animated films but also it the cons is it kind of just closes me off from the world even more. And that's pretty good in small doses. Kind of recharge your batteries a little bit. Help you recover from some of the BS of the real world. But I don't want to get stuck in that in that mode or that mood. There was many years where I didn't play video games at all. I mean... Harken back to the days of uh, the early 90s, I had a Super Nintendo. Late 90s, I had a PlayStation. Early 2000s, I had a Xbox. 
late 2000s, I had an Xbox 360, but both the Xbox and the Xbox 360, I ended up giving to my sister, Caitlin, as I uh, got older and was just trying not to mess with video games whatsoever. Until a couple years ago when Elisa and I got a PS3, and they've been fun. I, uh, they're good they're good things to have, <laughs> um, good entertainment value, and, and how far games have come these days, it's insane. It's almost more entertaining than a movie and, and so immersive. And I, I single-handedly um, thank and blame the makers of the Batman Arkham games for not only re- renewing my interest in Batman and comic books, but uh, just uh, entertainment in general. I mean, I always liked movies and stuff, but I, I my brain has changed. I'm more into um, TV shows and that sort of thing. But yeah, like, going back to this week, this week has just been blah, 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 and I'm conscious of it, and uh, hopefully I can move forward <laughs> into next week and have more shit going on. Weird, um... So last week, when this episode posted, found out about another musical icon that passed away, and that was Glenn Fry of the Eagles. Now, Glenn Fry was one of the two lead singers. I mean, everybody knows Don Henley from his solo career. He arguably had the best solo career of the Eagles, but Glenn Fry was a very important piece of the puzzle. And the Eagles are an interesting band. And I'll I'll start this off by saying, right around the time I was 18 was the first time I heard the Beatles. Not the Eagles, the Beatles. Because before that, I was way into hard rock, a little bit of punk, a little bit of hardcore. Then sometime, I I can remember the exact moment, and I'd probably heard a little bit of Beatles here and there, but I was riding to Concord with my buddy JP, Another guy I know, Elijah Rangel, and we were riding with JP's mom, and and I don't know if it was his stepdad at the time or if it was her boyfriend, but his stepdad, Ralph, later became his stepdad, and we all went down to Concord for one reason or another, and we were just playing shit in Guitar Center, but his parents were listening to Van Morrison, and one song in particular was Come Together by the Beatles, and... This was right around the time I was 17, maybe, maybe 18. But I just started getting into the Beatles more and more. And that kind of put me on a different path. Fast forward a few years later, I was into all sorts of classic rock. Thanks to The Eagle, 96.9, a classic rock radio station, a staple of Sacramento. And I listened to that pretty much all day working at the job that I'm currently at now back in like 06 07 especially because that was really the only radio station that came in really well at the time so I would hear all your classic rock stuff Neil Young Bob Seger Van Morrison the Doors the Rolling Stones the Beatles and yes the Eagles and the Eagles were a lot more country than anything that I was into at the time. And I can't tell you that I'm a big fan of country music. I like some of the classics. 
your Willie Nelson or your Chris Christopherson, you know, the stuff that goes back to the, the 70s, early 80s. And I also like some of the Johnny Cash stuff that he put out in the 90s right before he died. The very minimalistic, simplistic, Rick Rubin produced Johnny Cash albums. But the Eagles, I got to thank them for, for getting me into that because of their twangy voice, the slide guitar, even a little bit of banjo. And then my buddy JP, he knew a lot of Eagles stuff, probably from growing up listening to them, but used to play a lot of songs on his uh he used to play a lot of songs on the guitar with the lyrics and the chords up on the computer stuff like take it easy and hotel california and tequila sunrise so the longer as time went on i i enjoyed this band more and more and when i reconnected with my dad after not speaking for five years that was one of the bands that he grew up with Along with, you know, Tom Petty and the Stones, but the Eagles were both a band we, we really liked, and he really, really wanted to take me to see them. And we were lucky enough to see them on the Long Road Out of Eden tour, which was actually on my brother's birthday, April 27th, 2010. We went and saw them at Arco Arena, which later became Power Balance Pavilion and is now known as Sleep Train Arena, but... For the longest time, it's always been Arco Arena. Anybody who grew up around here knows it as Arco Arena. It's where the Sacramento Kings play, which they will play for the next season or two until they move into the new downtown arena. But this is right there, halfway in between downtown Sacramento and Woodland, the Arco Arena. I've seen many wrestling events there, saw the Black Keys there, Tool back in 2001. I mean, this is... I. You know, it, I've been there a lot of times is basically what I'm trying to say. But, man, this this concert was everything uh, of what I imagine a perfect band would be. Now, I read the book, um, shit, I, something about hell. I, I have it right here on my bookshelf. I don't know if I could read it. Uh, something about hell. My Life with the Eagles, I think Hell Freezes Over, maybe, um, by Don Felder. Don Felder was one of the guitarists in the band who was the only member from the last lineup from the late 70s that didn't continue with the band because of money disputes. And a lot of people put this book off as just being another one of those tell-all, scandalous, behind-the-scenes things. But I thought it was a really great book. And later when the History of the Eagles documentary came out, pretty much every story that they told in this documentary was already documented in this book. And I remember reading that there were like lawsuits in between <laughs> uh, band members and stuff. And uh, But luckily it, it, uh, <laughs> it all worked out and they were at least able to do the documentary. But Don Felder was the only member of the band that wasn't there that night. So regardless of what you can say about the interpersonal relationships and performing kind of without soul from what I, this is, this is not my opinion. This is just things that I've read on the internet, things I've heard from other people that these guys, instead of doing one or two takes in the studio with some imperfections that, 
contain a lot of character. They would just do it over and over again until everything was technically perfect but lost its soul. And the same thing could be said about their performances, that they can technically pull off all the songs perfect, hit all the notes perfect, but don't really have any passion anymore. And I guess I could see from some angles that being true. But for me, seeing these guys, the, they were spot on that night. They played every hit song that you could imagine. They had a lot of other instruments, a lot of other um, musicians out there <laughs> augmenting the songs, giving you different sorts of flavors and characteristics. Um, they just make the, they expand upon the original, the original compositions. And you had Joe Walsh out there as well. He's a staple of the band. He played a lot of his own hits. Joe Walsh's Funk 49 and Walk Away and Rocky Mountain Way. So, um, but the Eagles that night, man, I mean, I, I remember the second song they played was Hotel California. And the way, the place where we were sitting at, at the Arco Arena, was not in front of the stage, but on the side of the stage. So it was a very unique view. The downside is they weren't really ever looking at me. <laughs> and I didn't really, you know, I wasn't really able to, to connect <laughs> via eye contact or anything. But I got to see a view of not only the way they played, but I got to see the faces of everybody directly in front of them. And it was kind of, it was a really cool, unique experience. I've never seen another band from that angle before. And in a way, I kind of felt like I was on the stage. So, but they played, you know, Take It Easy. They played Take It to the Limit. They played Long Road Out of Eden, which has become one of my favorite Eagle songs. And it was from their 2007 album, which they were touring on. And yeah, that night, man, it was it was perfect. It was awesome. I it was a great memory for me and my dad to share together. And I'm glad I got to see them and got to see Glenn Fry before he passed away. And uh, maybe that maybe his him passing away is just kind of I don't know. Maybe maybe it casts a little bit of a shadow on the mood that I've had this week because I mean. The last few months or so, you had uh, Scott Weiland of Stone Temple Pilots, a band that, I, although I'd never seen live, I'd listened to a lot when I was younger and heard them on the radio all the time. Then you had Lemmy from Motorhead and David Bowie and Alan Rickman, the actor. And now you have Glenn Fry. Now, Glenn Fry got his start playing with Bob Seger from way back in the day. And then later... Um, both him and Don Henley and Don Henley's band kind of got together and were backing up. Uh, fuck, I can't remember her name right now. I want to say Carly Simon, but that is not that is not who. <laughs> it will come to me <laughs> as soon as I'm done with this podcast. But they were backing this female artist up. And after that, they decided to get together and write some songs together. And that's how the Eagles came to be. So uh, I came across an article and it was Bob Seger, 
who Glenn got his start with talking about uh, the last days, the last days uh, of his life. So this is off of a website called tasteofcountry.com. Not one of my regular uh, visits for my uh, music news, but uh, I got it off of a Google search. So here you go. This is called, uh, the, the title of this article is Bob Seger Recounts Glenn Fry's Last Days. And this was posted on the 23rd. So this episode posts on the 25th. So this is brand new news to you. And I quote, Glenn Fry's death at the age of 67 stunned his fans. But in a new interview, his longtime friend and fellow rock legend Bob Seger reveals that Fry's health had been much worse than most people knew. Fry... Fry, I keep saying Frey because it's spelled F-R-E-Y, but it's Fry. Fry died on Monday, January 18th in a hospital in New York City, succumbing to his complications from rheumatoid arthritis, acute ulcerative, something about ulcers, colitis, and pneumonia. He had undergone stomach surgery in November, which caused the Eagles to push back their Kennedy Center honors. And according to Seeger, he never left the hospital. The pair had been friends since their early days together in the Detroit music scene, and a young Fry even played guitar and sang backing vocals on Seeger's Ramblin' Gamblin' Man, long before he found fame in the Eagles. Seeger tells the Detroit Free Press that Fry was always one of his greatest cheerleaders and friends over the years, and he was concerned when Don Henley contacted him in November to tell him that Fry was hospitalized and in poor health. He was in a coma, and he'd come out, but then he couldn't breathe. They'd put him back into the coma, Seeger recalls. They were trying like hell to keep him alive. Eagles manager Irving Azoff pulled every ace out of the hole. He had the eight best specialists working on Glenn. Those efforts proved to be in vain. About a month ago, they had to throw up their hands. Fry had a long history of stomach problems, which he attributed attributed <laughs> to his period of alcohol and drug use in the 1970s, according to the Washington Post. Beginning in the 80s, he settled into a happy home life as a husband and father and led a healthy lifestyle that included an, in- ex- ex- included an extensive workout regimen. Seeger says there was much more to his friend than the public ever saw. In fact, the last time he and Fry saw each other at an Eagles gig in July, Fry had to fly in last minute after attending one of his kids' graduation. He loved his family. He loved his kids. He was devoted to them. Seeger states, He was so much more than people knew he was. He would never fail to start with telling me how grateful that he was that the audiences were still there. He loved the band. He loved the fact that he could keep doing this. And he kept doing this until six months before he died. So yeah, there's uh, uh, Bob Seeger's little comment on, on Glenn Fry, And uh, yeah, man, I mean, I've heard lots of stories. My dad's heard stories because he's kind of in the music industry. He drives around concert equipment, and he's been on a few big, huge tours. And a lot of people say that Glenn Fry uh, was a very private person. He didn't like to eat amongst the, the crew, the truck drivers. He wanted to be by himself, and I've read in books and stuff that he kind of, he kind of felt like he was above a lot of people, and in some ways he was. He was a, a bit. He was a very talented artist. He made a lot of money. He sang a lot of 
great classic songs, but at the same time, you know, you got to be a human being, but you can't, you can't believe everything you hear as well. I mean, the dude was a family man. I'm sure he loved his family and his very close bandmates. So that's it, man. Another one gone. Another one bites the dust. And I doubt that the Eagles will continue because he was such a signature part of their sound. So moving on from the Glenn Fry, rest in peace. Um, we had a, a, a surprise announcement, musical announcement. Um, first of all, I got to say at the drive-in, <laughs> out of nowhere, which I wasn't even expecting this. It's weird because I had just talked about at the drive-in and their landmark album relationship command on the most recent episode of post hardcore nation. They announced that not only do they have a new tour, a world tour coming up with all five original members, but they're also working on new music. Crazy fucking crazy that the timing couldn't have been any better. As uh, I was talking about <laughs> all this shit and their musical past, but they're going to be coming into my area, San Francisco, in June. Tickets go on sale uh, the end of this month, and you better believe I will be there. It's even at the Warfield, which is not. I only went to this venue one time to see Marilyn Manson in early 2013, and I didn't think it was a great venue at all. But like I said, there's no way I'm going to miss this. Because you don't know how long it's going to last. It's all five original guys. The guys that were that made the, the classic music. They made the classic albums. And they did a brief... Uh, they reunited briefly in 2012 for the Coachella Music Festival and a few other international things. And it didn't go over so well. Uh, their guitarist, Omar Rodriguez Lopez... Uh, his mother had passed away and he didn't really he wasn't really that connected to the rest of the band and the reunion didn't last that long so hopefully these circumstances are a little bit better i know omar and cedric have had this band anti-mask going on the last few years um after a brief breaking up of sorts after the mars volta and i don't know maybe maybe it's just a money thing all those guys want to continue to make music, but who knows? It, it could be genuine. It could be for the people that didn't get to see it before. And like I said, you better believe I'm going to be there. In other music news, Iggy Pop, classic punk rocker and a good friend of David Bowie's, collaborator of David Bowie's, uh, surprised everybody by uh, news of a new album collaboration with joshua homie josh homie the front man and lead creative force of queens of the stone age another band that i love and this is off of uh, blabbermouth.net a great website a great source for hard rock and metal news and the title of this article is iggy pop's collaboration with josh homie complete post-pop depression album details revealed here we go. The existence of the sublimely secretive desert opus conceived by Iggy Pop and Joshua Hami was confirmed yesterday to an unsuspecting studio and home audience of late, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. 
And now the world at large can know March 18th will see the release of Post-Pop Depression, the 17th Iggy Pop album and a worthy addition to the 22 album legacy spawned with the immortal trilogy of the Stooges, Funhouse, and Raw Power, spanning massively influential solo outings including 1977's opening 1-2 combo of The Idiot and Lust for Life and 1990's gold certified Brick by Brick. The first Iggy Pop album co-created with producer, guitarist, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, band leader Hami, post-pop depression began with a succinctly, succinctly worded text from Iggy to Joshua and was realized in seclusion with Hami's enlisted aid of his Queens of the Stone Age bandmate and dead weather man Dean Ferita, Fertita and Fertita? Fred Tita and Arctic Monkeys drummer Matt Hilders both became instantly in, integral <laughs> in creating and shaping the Detroit meets Palm Desert by way of old Berlin vibe of post-pop depression interweaving with and augmenting even more superhuman than expected Iggy vocal performances and Hami's tapestry of guitar bass piano and backing vocals for Tita's talent for ringing the most out of only the most essential notes worked in seamless tandem with Helders pushing himself and his new bandmates to unforeseeable heights and depths the result would be a timeless work, one that sounds as if it's always been there, has existed before any of the musicians were even born, yet imbued with the ramshackle energy of a garage band that threw itself together yesterday. Post-Pop Depression is now available for pre-order on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, and the Iggy Pop web store, with all pre-orders immediately receiving Gardenia. Debuted by Iggy, Joshua, and crew on The Late Show, Gardenia is also available on all streaming platforms. I wanted to be free, recalls Iggy, of the earliest germ of the partnership with Hami that culminated in post-pop depression. To be free, I needed to forget. To forget, I needed music. Josh had it in him, so I set out to provoke an encounter, first with a carefully worded text, followed by a deluge of writings all about me. No composer wants to write about nothing. He got revved up, and we had a great rumble in the desert USA. This was to go where neither of us had gone before, adds Hami. That was the agreement, and to go all the way. Post-pop depression is equal parts a dream come true for co-creator Hami, as it is a record that defiantly takes its place in Iggy's storied discography alongside the Twin Towers of the Idiot and Lust for Life. Two records in the mythic Berlin area of the creation canonized canonized as much lyrically german days as sonically sunday on the new record the album will be supported by a tour realizing hami's ambition to assemble a live outfit worthy of both bringing the new album and doing justice to to the jams and wreckage of Ig's sprawling solo catalog the core band that recorded the album will be expanded by queens of the stone ages Troy Van Leeuwen and journeyman guitarist Matt Sweeney. Post-pop depression is a singular work that stands proudly alongside the best works of either of its principles, from the Stooges to Queens of the Stone Age, bearing its creator's undeniable sonic DNA while sounding like nothing they've done before. It's a record that wouldn't exist without either pop or homey, and one that probably shouldn't, in theory... <laughs> if you really think about it but it does and we are we and rock and roll are all better for it so 
Yeah, I haven't got a chance to listen to the song Gardenia yet, but um, it's pretty exciting, man. I'm a big Queens of the Stone Age fan. I, I guess I got a lot of respect for Iggy Pop, but I, I can't say that I'm too familiar with his work. I need to go back, listen to some of that stuff. I could tell you that the songs like I Want to Be Your Dog and Raw Power are are they're great. They're staples. They have a very raw, unique sound. And I will listen I will listen to anything Josh Homme does. I may not be a fan of 100% of it, but he's one of the true uh, individuals out there that's still doing it uh, regardless. <laughs> uh, there, there's no outside influences there. This guy's going to do exactly what he wants to do, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So it's going to wrap up all my music news so far. Um, I don't know what else... What else is there to talk about? Shit, I watched. Uh, I only watched one movie this week. It was uh, the movie Goosebumps with Jack Black, and it was quite a ordeal trying to get this thing going. I got a copy of it from somebody I work with, and I was first of all I wanted to hook it up in the living room, so I put the flash drive into the computer, hooked the computer up to the TV, and for some reason. Every time I played the movie, it just looked really choppy, like the audio was working, but I don't know. You know how you're watching like a YouTube video and you don't have a really good connection or even one of those old school real videos from back in the day? It, it, it was just annoying. It was annoying. I couldn't watch it. <laughs> and I don't know. It might just be this computer. This computer does not play Blu-rays. I know the file is kind of a Blu-ray copy. And uh, what, what can you do? So I hooked it up to the PlayStation. We were watching it in the bedroom, and it was still a little choppy. But luckily, it, it I was able to uh, get past it. it. It ran a little bit more smooth than on the computer in the living room. But uh, the only, only reason I, I even watched it on the flash drive was because I was going to try to rent it, and it was not available to rent. Not on Amazon, not on Vudu HD Movies, only for purchase. So, sorry guys, you didn't get my money. I had to watch it for free. And I, I got to say that I'm glad that I didn't really pay for it. Because the movie... Now, I didn't really expect a ton <laughs> from it because it is a kid's movie. It's definitely meant for kids, but it just wasn't... I didn't feel like it was that great. I was a, I was kind of a Goosebumps fan as a kid. I had a lot of the books, but I, I, I can honestly tell you I didn't really read a lot of them. I more like just collected them. I was in a book club in fourth, fourth fifth grade that my grandma signed me up for. It was like the Scary Stories book club or something. And every month, you know, shout out to Scholastic too because they hooked it up. But every month... They would send me one one Goosebumps book. I'd get another book that was scary stories from a different author. I would get maybe some stickers or a pencil, a bookmark, some shit like that, maybe a poster. So it was usually like two books and then some some swag. <laughs> so I didn't like I said I didn't really read a lot of these books, but a few years later, Fox, the TV channel had a series called Goosebumps the series where they brought a lot of these books to life in a 30 or 60 minute episode I can't really remember but some of them 
although although I couldn't say that I was super scared, they definitely left impressions on me. Uh, one of them being like the the London Tower, the the Tower of Terror, something like that. That was a, an episode that really uh, sat with me. And then there was also the Haunted Mask. That was a really good one. Where a girl, it's kind of similar to the mask with Jim Carrey, but <laughs> very scary instead of a funny way. But yeah, so this movie, and, and it had Jack Black in it, so you figure this would be right up my alley. But I just, the script wasn't very good, the dialogue wasn't very good, the acting was kind of cheesy, and uh, the story itself, they just, I, I really appreciate what they tried to do, but I can see why it wasn't that successful. It it should have done more to live up to the Goosebumps name. I mean, the one thing that I remember from the movie that they mentioned was the dude, the author, R.L. Stein, sold like 400 million books. <laughs> so you figure that uh, this would be a little bit higher quality. But, you know, this is the problem with studio films is they there's too many what do you call it? what's the saying i'm looking for too many cooks <laughs> something like that yeah too many cooks in the kitchen <laughs> so everybody's trying to do something and it just comes out into this jumbled mess and producers i mean i don't know i i'm going to go off into something else now which is weird cuz I, I i didn't really give you a very detailed review i could just say that i will probably i probably won't watch it again um, there's very few movies that I have a lot of interest in, especially mainstream movies, and this one let me down. And I really see no reason to watch it again. I don't. I don't really. It wasn't terrible. It just wasn't great. It wasn't. It wasn't even good. So, <sighs> oh well, with goosebumps. But which brings me to another point is I am just about done. I have about three pages left on this book called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. And this was a book that I had heard about for years because I'm a big movie fan in the history of film, especially the 60s and 70s. All sorts of behind-the-scenes Hollywood stuff. And I finally got a copy of this book last February, so it's almost been a year. But it was uh, Elisa, myself, her mom, and the dog. We went up to Portland, Oregon because we were looking for... We wanted to see a spot to get married and there was this place called cathedral park where we actually ended up getting married but we wanted to see it in person because we had a i wouldn't say a bad experience but we we noticed that in pictures a location could look a lot better than it actually does in person and we went to a place down in carmel uh, initially that uh, it was on the beach and it wasn't that cool at all. So we went to the this cathedral park all the way in Portland, Oregon, because that's we really liked the pictures. We wanted to see it in person, so we loved it. And ultimately, that's where our wedding ceremony was held. But there's a famous bookstore in Portland called Powell's City of Books, and they call it the City of Books because this place is the size of a square block in downtown Portland, man, Portland, Oregon. This is a giant freaking bookstore. It's like a mall, but with books <laughs> and they're everything. They have a whole section of graphic novels. There's 
a whole section of crime. There's a whole section. There's a giant just children's books. I mean, this you can get lost in this. This is like what you when you when you see the when you're watching movies and you see people in like the New York public library. It's like this fucking big. So naturally, I went over to the entertainment section where all the books about movies and music are because those are my you know big interests and. I found this copy of Easy Riders Raging Bulls and it tells the true story about how Hollywood kind of changed and and directors became auteurs. They were very they were challenging the status quo and this was in the Viet, the post the Vietnam and post Vietnam era um post hippie movement into the 70s where everything got really dark and gritty and a lot of the films that it covers are, are you know, anything from uh, The Godfather and, and Easy Rider, Apocalypse Now, even Star Wars, Taxi Driver, um, Raging Bull, just a lot of the, the famous uh, directors from that era. And a lot of the shit that went on behind the scenes with studio executives and studios being built and people having affairs with each other and drug use and people dying and all sorts of stuff. And I I finally, I only got three pages left in this book. On the way back from that trip, I probably read about a quarter of it. And then I just hadn't, I don't know, I, I, I just... It's a, it's a subject that I'm I'm definitely interested in, but I found myself just very busy and not really not necessarily um, wanting to spend whatever free time I had reading. I was working on music, planning the wedding, um, going to the gym, and one of the big places where I, I get a lot of reading done is is at work on when I'm on my break or on lunch. And I've just been, I've been exercising a lot lately, but now with this weather and it's been raining, <laughs> it's been raining a lot lately. Um, I've been able to finally just get through this book and, and it's been a ride. It's been awesome. And, um, one of the things about the book that I found in general, and I definitely recommend it to anybody who's a big movie fan, a cinephile, is it talks about how that era ended with well kind of like star wars star wars was kind of the catalyst to how everybody uh it, it was such a hit star wars was such a big hit and it was such a family film and it was so against everything that was considered mainstream movie making at the time that it, it changed it changed everything forever and and movie studios figured out that it's not i mean you can you can make so much more money off of a movie if you appeal towards kids and you can merchandise your film and from there that's you know uh big blockbusters were the were the next thing there was uh, uh indiana jones there was oh, top gun <laughs> all the et i mean it, it it all became very family centric, blockbuster centric, and slowly the last few decades these movies that were made for adults have been 
becoming less and less of a mainstream thing. Now, that's not to say the independent market and uh, has a lot of great auteurs out there. And I mentioned last week some of my favorite directors. But this Goosebumps... <laughs> I mean, the thing is with... with mainstream movies in general it's kind of a, a flip of the coin and you never know whether something's going to be successful or not and they're a lot of the studios are buying up these franchises and things that already exist book series i mean harry potter is a is a huge example of something that was a kid's book series that became these massive hits lord of the rings was a series of stories that have been out for a very long time that they also you know brought brought into the mainstream film world and then you see all these comic book things like the avengers and batman and spider-man so of course you know and the young adult novels your your twilights and your hunger games and your 50 shades of gray well that's kind of more adult than young adult but you know goosebumps that seem like a natural fit that could be a great cinematic uh that could we can appeal towards kids and we can create merchandise on it but it just the film just didn't work it was too hollywood it didn't have anything special about it if it wasn't based on a book series that already existed in people's minds for so long, maybe it could have, I don't know. I mean, to me, it didn't, there was nothing special about it other than the fact that it was based on something that was already special. And we've already seen this last year with uh, some other properties, one of them being a 80s cartoon, Gem and the Holograms, which they uh, they made into a movie, and it was it ended up being like the worst financial disaster of that particular studio of all time. So yeah, I mean, going forward, I'm still going to continue to watch these big movies. Like I said, I, I had good things to say about Ant Man, <laughs> which is definitely a family movie, and I'm gonna watch Batman versus Superman. I'm gonna watch the captain america 3 and all that shit but you know it's it's not always these these studio guys and and executives and they don't always they're not always in touch with what people really want and what people really need sometimes sometimes people don't you know they you need to give them something that they need which they don't know that they want so yeah that's what i gotta say about <laughs> the movie thing and Seeing as I'm almost at an hour now, I'm just going to touch on something. Uh, one more thing, my opinion, my opinion only. Here's a disclaimer, but this is something that's been kind of a controversy recently in the news and entertainment news, and that is the Academy Awards. So this year, the Academy Awards, there are no major nominations for people of color <laughs> uh, african-american actors and actresses and directors and stuff in general now i could say that honestly most mainstream media has been geared towards those of uh caucasian <laughs> i mean that's just the way our, our culture has been and it and it's only been the last I think 10 or 15 years where we've seen a lot more diversity in movies and TV 
especially the uh, Latino, Hispanic community, because they make up such a big part of this world, and the African-American community as well. But this year, you know, it's just, it, it's an academy. It's, it's, it's made up of people in the entertainment industry, whether it be actors or writers or directors or producers. They're the ones who vote on this, and they just so happen to not pick any people of color in their major major categories this year. And there's been all sorts of shit about people wanting to boycott the Oscars, that the Oscars are racist, that there's too much there's too much white out there. <laughs> and even Saturday Night Live and all the late night shows, they're getting in on it and agreeing with it and I just got to say, I I don't really think that they've done anything wrong. And a lot of people think that my opinion doesn't matter because I'm of white descent. I'm Caucasian. But it's just the way the luck of the draw this year. I mean, there ha- 2015, I mean, yes, I didn't see Creed. So I, I can't really speak on that. But Michael B. Jordan, the actor who plays uh, Paulo Creed's son, who's actually the leading man of that movie from what I heard, he doesn't really give an Oscar winning performance. He gives a good performance, but it was Sylvester Stallone who played Rocky, who really stood out this year. There's another movie called uh, beasts of no nation with Idris Elba. He wasn't nominated. Well, a lot of people think that because that movie was direct to Netflix, that it shouldn't really count as a theatrical film, even though it was released in a theater. And who knows? I mean, that could be that. But to say that the Oscars are racist because one year this is the way it's been, I mean, there's been a lot of of African-American and Hispanic people that have won awards. Case in point, the last two years, Best Director has gone to Latin directors last year was Birdman and the year before was Gravity both guys and I I don't know their names right now but those aren't white guys you know (laughs) also I mean we've had people like Denzel Washington and Forrest Whitaker win awards we've had a movie I don't know basically I, I wish that I did a lot more research on this I just wanted to talk about it for a minute and to say that uh, the the movie industry is racist is is completely far fetched, man. When you have somebody like Samuel L. Jackson, whose movies he, he he's the only actor whose films have made more money than anybody in the entire world. He was bar- well, he was just passed by Harrison Ford technically, but. Samuel L. Jackson has been a part of so many movies and franchises that have grossed the most amount of dollars up until very, very recently as of like last month. This guy was in the Star Wars trilogy. This guy was in all of the Marvel Avengers movies. I mean, he plays a key character, Nick Fury, who connects all of them together. Your Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, the Avengers, all the Quentin Tarantino movies, basically. Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Django Unchained, and The Hateful Eight. So, I don't know, man. It's it's just one of 
we're in this world now, 2016, where, I mean, I always feel like racism has been part of this world no matter what, but because of social media and because of fear, it's, it, I feel like we're just becoming more and more separated. I mean, <laughs> yeah. There's the NAACP Awards, which are awards geared towards only African-American performers. You have the Latin Grammys, which are only for Latin music artists. But there's no, <laughs> there's no white <laughs> awards. There's no Caucasian-American awards because that would be deemed racist, whereas the other will not. And I understand that a lot of people think that well, all your mainstream award shows are basically geared towards white people. But that's not true because of the examples that I've laid out so far. So, I don't know, man. In the words of Rodney King, can't we all just get along? And I'm going to support a great creative person, no matter what their color is. Black, white, Asian, <laughs> Uh, Latino, Indian, whatever, man. I, I, if you're good at what you do, then you're good at what you do, and and that should be it, man. You should be based on your work, not your color. And I think no matter what, there's always going to be brilliant performances that are overlooked. So that's my two cents on the thing. Um, trying to <laughs> let's just see what happens next week, man. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that that's about it. So. Thanks again for listening this week. Um, I think starting next week, actually, I'm going to I'm going to start cutting out those little intros. I thought they were cool for a while, and 40 episodes in, we're going to start slowly moving into our. We're going to start transitioning into our our new format. So it's been a good run so far, and if you want to follow me, it's at Stephen M J Gedney on Twitter and Instagram. Um, ruralsuburban.bandcab.com download whatever music I got out there maybe you can get some new stuff too still working on the documentary gonna pursue more creative outlets making movies and playstation movies and all that good shit so with that being said have a good one <laughs>